This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to the show. I'm Major Garrett, working from home like most of us are. And if you're not working from home, meaning if you're a healthcare worker, a frontline grocery worker, doing something that is essential, thank you. Keep safe, keep healthy, and the rest of us, we're going to do what we can to make sure we do not overly burden those who are essential, and we'll get all on the other side of this eventually, but we're going to do the things that we most need to do right now, which is to stay at home and stay out of the way. We've got a great, great episode for you this time with people who, two gentlemen who are straight up sensations in the world of comedy internet production, and just overall entertainment production. They are like this massive factory of comedy, of entertainment, and social media, and internet presence. They are known as Rhett and Link. Introduce yourselves, gentlemen, whichever order you prefer. Well, usually I start. (laughs) Good. So I'll say, I'm Rhett. And I'm Link. Yeah, we host Good Mythical Morning, and we've got a lot of things going on uh, at Mythical in general, so... Yeah, we're glad to be here with you. So I know why I'm talking to you for all the reasons I just said. What are you doing hanging out with an aging bum of legacy media like me? <laughs> we need as much interpersonal contact as we can get in this time, Major. So we'll, I'm, I'm, I mean, not that you're not top on the list, but uh, we've been going through the list. Yeah, you yeah. Know, anyone who's willing to talk to me. Yeah. Like there's relatives that I haven't spoken to in years that now we're like crying together on video chat. It's just, it's a beautiful thing. Right. So there, there's a dull bladed knife scraping the bottom of some barrel in both of your houses right now. <laughs> and I'm what's stuck to it, aren't I? Well, you, you said it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've aspired to that all my life, to be on the bottom of the barrel stuck to the dull bladed knife of Rhett and Link. And I finally achieved that broadcast immortality. Good oh, wow. on me. That's good. Uh, seriously, uh, you mentioned this a moment ago, but you have Good Mythical Morning, Good Mythical More, Ear Biscuits, Mythical Kitchen, Smoosh, Smoosh Pit, Smoosh Games, Shut Up Cartoons, E Smoosh. Have I left anything uh-huh. out in your vast empire you, of production? You haven't, you haven't left anything out, but you called Smosh Smoosh, which, you know what, happens all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, in good, I'm in good ignorant company, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so we got, we got a lot going on. Um, and thankfully we found a way to continue it during this time. It's, you know, in a different form because we, and we have a studio that everybody usually comes into to make all of our content and everybody, since we got the order, well, really actually before we got the order from governor Newsom, we sort of anticipated what was happening and everybody started working from home a few days before that. And, uh, 
yeah, so everybody's got hard drives at their houses and footage is going up and down from the server and we're just we're trying to keep pumping out the content. How much of a cha- how much of a challenge has that been? Just logistically and 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 work-wise. It's been more of a challenge than one might think. I mean, when we with everything that you listed, they're all internet shows and you know, it's it, there's this perception that you know, if you, if you got a webcam you can make a show, you can have your own YouTube channel, that type of stuff. I mean, that's, and we've been on YouTube since the beginning and developing uh, Good Mythical Morning and all the other things that you listed. But I mean, it was, once we found ourselves at home, there was, there was a bit of a reckoning because it was, okay, we had, uh, we had fallen out of the habit of doing everything ourselves. And, <laughs> you know, we, we've got a great team of people that work in our studio that, that make our show happen now. And it's, it's a different vibe than it was when we first started, but this in a lot of ways is going back to that. You know, it's like, I got to figure out how to work my microphone and, and get, the, get, the, get all the, all my video files uploaded and to the team and stuff like that. So yeah, it's, it shouldn't have been as difficult as I, as I feel like it actually was. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I noticed watching Good Mythical Morning is uh, it has an informality to it, but it's a highly produced show. There's a great deal of editing that goes on and camera angles. It's polished. It's all get out. It's it's a thing that is that that takes a lot of work before and after. I have to believe. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and it's that's been a very iterative process because, like like said, we started just the two of us. I mean, the very first thing we ever did, which was sort of the precursor to Good Mythical Morning was something called Good Morning Chia Lincoln that we started back in North Carolina where we're just like, all right, let's just talk to each other for about 10 minutes every day on the internet and we'll do this show as long as a Chia Lincoln will live, which turns out to be about 40 days. So, and that was <laughs> A Chia just- Lincoln <laughs> is uh, a Chia pet. Na- named Lincoln? Sha- uh, a no, shaped that, like that Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln. Beautiful, yes. even better, yes. And that's why there remains a... Uh, a Chia Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln on the set to this day in the background. Um, but yeah, so we slowly just were like, okay, can we make this a little bit, uh, you know, can we up the quality on this? Can we make it even more engaging? And honestly, can we make it easier for us to do, you know, going into, I guess what this is the eighth year or so that we've been doing the show, you know, over 2000 episodes. So once it gets up to, a number like that, you start trying to find a way to like, we got to, we got to keep this going. <laughs> so let's make it as easy as we can for ourselves. And so that's where the team kind of came in and started doing all this for us. And now we got to go back to doing it all ourselves. So it's often described as the entertainment business. There's entertainment and then there's business, meaning you make money and you have to support yourself and you build a career around that entertainment. How did you find that idea within the internet? Uh, was it just a notion? And obviously you've built a business out of this, but you're, do- you're not stand up. You don't go on the road. You do some road shows I've seen over time, but this is an internet thing that you built into a much larger, you've got a production company now. How did that all evolve? Yeah. I mean, at the beginning of YouTube in 06, 07, when we were just getting going, I mean, we had a number of videos that we had made over the years leading up to it. And then we just started putting those on YouTube. But I mean, YouTube at the time wasn't owned by Google and it wasn't sharing any revenue like they are now with the, with the partner program. So, I mean, we, 
we were each married with children and we were, you know, we wanted to make a go of it. Um, and we had to figure out how to do that. Um, so we started negotiating brand integrations into music videos we were making. We wrote a song about the, the beanbag toss game cornhole. You ever played yes, cornhole? Right, yes, you of know? course. Yeah. Sounds much dirtier and suggestive than it is. Yes. Right. Um, <laughs> and so we, we reached out to basically mom and pop companies that were selling cornhole boards on the internet. And we, we teamed up with one of them, AJJ Cornhole, to pay mm-hmm. us to, to put them in our music video. And we were like, hold on, I, th- I think there's a business model here. I mean, we're, you know, it's just, it's a little bit of scratch. We can build on that. <laughs> right. And so over time, we started working with agencies who began to notice. And because brands were s- starting to want to reach the viewers on the internet. And so slowly but surely, we found a way to, to, to elevate our content, make our fans happy, and also incorporate brands in a way that um, was difficult for a lot of people. But I mean, when you, when you got mouths to feed, you, you, you find a way. Necessity, the mother of invention. It's a mm-hmm. cliche, but it's also super true, as many yeah. cliches yeah. are. Uh, and then you also got into this whole thing of making commercials for these small businesses that turn into a sensational unto themselves. Yeah, and that, uh, again, started as an integration, a brand integration deal where we were working with a company called Microbuilt, who basically their clients were small businesses. And we became friends with the CEO of Microbuilt because he sponsored one of our videos uh, back in the day. And he was just like, hey, can we do something here? All my clients have these small businesses all around America. So we came up with the idea, well, what if we made commercials for your clients, sort of as a service? It'll be an advertisement for their small business. It'll also be an advertisement for Microbuilt. But we'll do the classic local commercial thing. Uh, he loved the idea. And so the we went to, there's two businesses in High Point, North Carolina, which is pretty close to where we lived at the time. One was the uh, the Red House Furniture Store, uh, and the other was uh, TDM Auto Sales. And we basically at the Red we one of the things that we were known for pretty early on in 2009 was the Red House commercial because we actually we would always get the ideas from the client themselves. We didn't pitch them much. We just sort of talked to them and got the ideas. And they made the point, they were like, well, you know what? There's a lot of black people and a lot of white people who work here. And there's a lot of black people and a lot of white people who shop here. We're kind of like the rainbow coalition of furniture. And we were like, that's the commercial. (laughs) And so the slogan became the red house where black people and white people buy furniture. And uh, we kind of never looked back. Yeah. And then we went over to TDM auto sales, which was like a mile away and they had there was an owner and then one car salesman i mean this is a small car lot and the guy was from cuba he had he had this very he had an endearing accent and he was like very um uh he was a character but he said you know in cuba i was a gynecologist but here in america i'm an auto salesman so we said that's your commercial there it is rudy the cuban gynecologist slash american auto salesman and then we found ourselves being interviewed on like cnn and just talking about these commercials that we had made because people couldn't believe that they were real they were a joke but they were also very sincere and real and so we made a whole bunch of those 
Then that got turned into a reality show on IFC, right. which moved us out to Los Angeles in order to make that show. That went for one season. And then on the backside of that, um, when they didn't order it for a second season, that was a blessing in disguise because that's when we, we said, you know what, that Good Morning Chia Lincoln thing that we did for 40 days, let's do that again and let's call it Good Mythical Morning. And so that's when we started seven, you know. Um, right. Over 2,000 episodes later, we're, we're still doing it. And Good Mythical Morning brings us quite happily to Ms. Locklear. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Go. Explain. Yeah, so Miss Lenora Locklear was our first grade teacher, and she is she's responsible for this entire enterprise <laughs> because back in 1984, in her first grade class in Bowie's Creek, North Carolina, I had just moved uh, into town and met Link that first day. We got in trouble for writing uh, profanity on our desks. And Which we were profanity, held- please? Um, well, you know what? We don't exactly remember the specifics, but over the years, the, the story has become hell and damn. I see. That's pr- I, I don't that, think that's it got more edgy the, than that. Yeah, okay. I'm sure that I misspelled damn, so it wasn't <laughs> even a curse word. <laughs> Um, yes, but at the dainty and frilly end of vulgarity, but you know, you're working yourself <laughs> right, out right. in the first grade. Yeah, right, you got to start somewhere. So we were held in from recess and we were given these coloring books to occupy ourselves and we had to co- color pictures of mythical beasts. I think I remember Paul Bunyan being involved in some way, but Wait, that's he's not this mythical. whole idea. <laughs> exactly. Well, the blue ox. Blue can, ox. We start, can we start there? <laughs> the blue ox is mythical. <laughs> so... That was where we got this idea, this idea of this, these mythical, you know, the origin story of coloring mythical beasts. And that's where this mythical branding came from. We started calling everything we were doing mythical until we ended up just calling the company, which used to be called Red Link Incorporated. Now it's just mythical entertainment. Uh, yeah, that's all thanks to Ms. Locklear. Is uh, Ms. Locklear still with us? Um not right now. Can we bring her in to the call? <laughs> uh, that, are you going to surprise us? Because that would be no, pretty no, I, cool. I, I, I meant existentially. I mean, is she still with us? And is she? Is she? Does she, does she know that she is the inspiration? Do you keep in touch oh, with her? Oh yeah. Does she, she's a, she, she's a she grade a school principal. Okay. Yeah, actually, um, you know, back before our YouTube careers really took off, we made a documentary called "Looking for Miss Locklear." Yes, where I we read about it. We documented the process of uh, trying to find her, but the stipulations were uh, we couldn't use the phone or the internet. We had to only use face-to-face contact with people and the conversations we could have as we met one person, they would lead us to the next person to get us closer to reunited with the woman who we owe so much gratitude to. So I can't give away if we found her, but... uh, I mean, it would kind of suck if we didn't, right? Kind of, kind of, yeah. It'd be a downer if you didn't, no doubt. Do you two consider yourselves comedians? Uh, yeah, I think so. We- okay. <laughs> but but in a, in a, I'm fascinated by this because I'm fascinated not only about the creative process generally, but how YouTube and the way you two have figured out a way to bring your talents, your comedy, your bits, if you will, to the public has a completely different sort of price point of creativity. You didn't have, you didn't go the network route. You didn't go the yeah. studio development route. You basically did it yourself, put it on this place and hoped people would find you. Yeah. And, and that is 
something that didn't exist 20 years ago, and you were among the first to kind of revolutionize it, does that make your creative process easier, more uh, intuitive? Because I have to think if you're going to go through the studio model or the production model, that's just a big lift and a whole complicated noise factory of all sorts of things. And this seems to me closer to home, if I'm saying that correctly. Yeah, I mean, YouTube really gave us the opportunity, I mean, to to express ourselves and to find ourselves and find our audience along the way. And I mean, it's it's the it's a constant shaping and reshaping process because it's so interactive. I mean, it's with the comments and the feedback that you get. I mean, it, it you really start to understand what people want to watch, what people enjoy about us and and it and it really hones our craft. So yeah, we consider ourselves comedians. I definitely prefer that term over YouTubers. A lot of times we would call ourselves over the years entertainers because our type of comedy is so it it so much of it just comes as just kind of an outpouring of our friendship and the way that we interact and the way that we converse and the way that we think and um, the things that make us laugh. It's not. I mean, we we craft songs and there's jokes in those and I mean we. But it's a totally different genre of comedy where it's, it's, it's so much coming from who we are. And then I think what our audience of Mythical Beasts starts to connect with is not just a funny joke or a funny bit or a funny angle. And we have those, but I think it's the, the breadth of what, how they get to know us as people. I mean, even if you, if you look at our podcast, Ear Biscuits, there's been an evolution there where... Some episodes we're cackling and making each other laugh and it's absolutely ridiculous, but a lot of times we're just talking about what we're going through in life and some episodes we might be crying. We might not be laughing at all, you know? And I think it's, we're presenting more of our of ourselves as, as whole people. <laughs> um, and I think that that really connects, especially on the internet. You see a lot of, I mean, you see a lot of celebrities, especially right now, who are starting to connect more, whether that's on YouTube or right. JLo on TikTok. I mean, right. they're starting to show more of the breadth of, of their lives and their perspective. And it's not just the one thing that people want to go to them for. And we've learned that over the past decade of, okay, we're, we're comedians and we're people too, you know? Right. And as we express ourselves, the great thing is we we, we have a lot more opportunity to, to try different projects and do different things and uh, bring our bring our audience along for the ride because they you know they're 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 kind of family members in one sense not just consumers right and and I want to ask you since you touched on that how are you doing right now separate from what's your the work you're doing how are you holding up how is your family doing for both of you and and how is this experience does it feel like it's changing you? Do you feel like you're gaining a different perspective on things? Just how are you holding up? You know, I think that there was a, in my mind, given the fact that we we stay very busy, we usually, you know, we we have these steady streams of content where you you don't there's not we have we we have seasons, but essentially we've got this steady stream of content. We usually just add another stream of content or another revenue stream, and so. Over the past few years, there's definitely been, even though we're pretty good at managing our schedule, there's been a sense of like, whoa, there's a lot of plates spinning right now. And so I think for a lot of busy people, 
having to go and isolate and be with your family, there was sort of this forced slowdown mm-hmm. that I, I think for me was sort of like, okay, all right, I can't do all the things that we were doing or everything that I want to do. So I, I think I had some grandiose idea that, oh, I'm going to have a lot of time for introspection and we're going to be, I'm going to be able to think about myself personally. I'm going to be able to think about, uh, you know, our business from a professional side. I'm going to be able to work out some things. And the funny thing is, is I think for the first week that kind of was happening. But then when we started having meetings about, well, how are we going to keep our content going? What is it going to look like? Right. And now our days are sort of filled with like Link was hinting at earlier. It's like, well, you got to set everything up. You got to film yourself. You you, you got to get the files to the right people. Uh, you got to wait on those big files to upload. And I kind of feel like in some ways sort of return back to the idea of all the plate spinning. It's just, it feels a little bit different. Um, yeah. But just yesterday on the, on the podcast, we were talking about the, how we're dealing with sort of the relational dynamics. You know, we both, we both got wives and kids. Link's got three, I've got two. So he's got just a little bit more to deal with than, than I do, but sharing the house with an 11 year old and a 16 year old and my wife, uh, there's been ups and downs for sure. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sure it's even more difficult for them to share uh, the house with you, Rhett. But, yes. you know, the, I, it's it been an interesting saying, experience. I think. I, I think that, you know, it's, it's day to day, right? I mean, things come in waves. There's emotions associated with this. And, you know, it's, it's, since it's unprecedented, there's so many aspects of it. I, from a business standpoint, we were having to make a lot of decisions for our 80 employees and right. I, you know i think we felt the weight of leadership to say okay we can we can make the decisions that impact not only their livelihoods but their personal safety and we can get on a conference call where they can see our faces and we have the opportunity to say things that can either scare them or give them comfort um and that was an interesting position to be in from a from a business standpoint but it, it was also a great opportunity to show what our values were as, as people and as a company at Mythical and how we cared about them, not only as team members, but as people. And also, also in terms of home life, like Rhett was saying, just interacting with our wives and kids so much more than we're used to <laughs> is a bit challenging for them. You know, I can't, I can't decide if I'm annoying my kids more than they're annoying me or vice versa. But I, you know, I just try to, it's so easy to get caught up and to just, just kind of feel like you're going nuts with in any given day. But I just, I try and it's very difficult to step back and say, you know what, when this is behind us, I think that the good and the bad days and all of the challenges and even when we were at each other's throats, we'll look back on that with um, a fondness that it was it was an experience that, uh, you know, we wouldn't trade for a million dollars. Mm-hmm. I don't know if at this point I'm not willing to put a price on it, but that's what I'm hoping for. Yeah, it's like when you go on vacation and you're like, man, when I really think about it, we were all about to kill one another, but boy, you remember how great of a time we had in Hawaii? <laughs> you know, it's like, it's just, that's just how it goes. So what, one of the things that makes your show so uh, appealing, I think, in addition to the interaction with your audience and that feedback is you are, and you still exude this idea of 
small boys from North Carolina, it seems to me, and the sensibilities and the sense of humor and uh, the humility that comes with it. I wonder how much, if at all, L.A. changed you and moving it to L.A. and being in the L.A. scene changed you, if at all. You know, I think that, um, I mean, as I sit here with my hair tied back, my long hair tied back, um, which I would have judged pretty thoroughly 10 years ago when I was in North Carolina. Uh, yeah, there's definitely been change. I mean, I, I think that I, I've thought about this quite a, quite a bit in the, uh, you know, as we've gotten more open with, you know, our personal lives through our podcast, and we've talked more about how our views on things have changed and evolved over time. Um, obviously we've, we've gotten a lot of the, oh, you, LA changed you guys. I remember when you guys were just some good old boys from North Carolina. And I think that, um, first of all, I mean, the idea of sort of a constant, I, I want to be a person that is growing and changing. And I feel like I have been sort of my whole life, regardless of the place that, that I'm at. Right. And I do think that there's, there's a lot that I am who I am largely because of where I'm from, you know, and the, the people that raised me and I'm proud of, I'm proud of a lot of those, those Southern, uh, values in a lot of ways, but at the same time, I'm also, uh, proud of how I've been able to kind of look back and sort of evaluate some of that stuff critically and think, okay, well, okay. Uh, there's some good and there's some bad, just like there's some good and there's some bad in, in Los Angeles. And I think that sort of the art of life is continuing to grow and continuing to try to be a healthier and healthier person, but also recognize like what your environment has to offer both good and bad. Link. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I think don't we all want to be engaged in life in such a way that the, the people and that we encounter in the experiences that we have, have an impact on us and that we, we filter everything that we experience through ourselves and then it changes who we are. I think if that I, I hope that's always true of me. And so being in this particular place, um, interacting with the people I have, sure it's had a, had an impact on me. I think much more positive than negative, but I think it's, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's a loaded question when you ask, but I do think in general, that question might have a little, it might be loaded because people bring certain associations with Los Angeles or the entertainment industry. And they think that, okay, that's the, it's like a, some, sometimes when people ask, it's just a critique of disagreeing with certain things that uh, we value um, right. or that I right. value. So um like LA is a secular place and maybe that's changed you. There's that undertone or something on which I'm not driving at, but I'm just curious right. if, because I grew up in Southern California, San Diego. So just as a small digression, anyone who grows up in San Diego can't stand Los Angeles because no one in Los Angeles ever thinks about anyone who lives in San Diego. And all we think about in San Diego <laughs> is what people in Los Angeles are thinking about. <laughs> okay. Uh, but it's a it's a town where in in the entertainment business and the industry players are players and they there's a whole movie a Tim Robbins movie the player um, and there's a cycle of that entertainment world and how you uh, how successful you are how much money you make 
how visible you are, all those other things. And I, I just wonder if any of that um, has seeped into your lives or because you're in this YouTube, internet, and this production world that's so separate from that, you've been able to either consciously avoid it or just sort of exist in your own plane. Yeah, I, I do think that given what we do on YouTube, um, even though we've had a little bit of interaction with sort of a traditional Hollywood side of things, um, yeah, our lives do not look like your typical Hollywood person. That's not the circle that we run in. Those aren't our friends. Um, you know, if in fact, with, with one of the charities that uh, – we work with, we were talking with uh, the local director and uh, she, she was talking to, to my wife and I, she was like, you know, we got one of our, she mentioned a celebrity that we all know. She said, Oh, and she did like a, a fundraiser with her friends and they raised a million dollars in one night. And I was like, here's the thing you got to understand. I don't have rich friends. Like that's not, that's my, my friends might give you a million monopoly dollars, but uh, that's not going to happen. It's, you know, what's going to be a lot more effective is if I challenge the mythical beasts, uh, you know, our fans to contribute, you know, but a lot of people contributing small amounts. Right. To chip um, in a little bit here and there. Right. Yeah. So I do think that we have just given the fact that we're YouTube, even though we're very connected to a lot of other YouTubers, there's, and there's a lot in Los Angeles, they're really all over the world. And you're not really running in that typical scene. And when we do have the opportunity to kind of experience it, like go to a party or whatever, I think we go to those things very much as those two boys from North Carolina who are kind of freaking out saying like, Oh, there's Michael B. Jordan over there, <laughs> you know, and it's, and we're de we definitely don't feel like we belong. And I kind of hope that that doesn't ever change. I did shake hands with Michael B. Jordan as he was leaving a party and he never stopped walking. And then I got shoulder checked by two very muscular guys who were following him out. I think they might have been in his employ <laughs> just to kind of send me a message. Right. That, uh, a sh so handshake I'm, is all you're going to get. I, I'm, I'm, I'm putting into my mind a mental picture of your entourage and I think it's just the two of you, right? <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Sometimes Stevie, our our uh, our chief creative officer uh, and producer, she she goes with us to some parties. She knows how to to work a suit. And she looks like she belongs more carpet, than we do. <laughs> and and she, I and I bet having heard her voice, it's that voice that uh, opens a lot of doors. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. That's right. That's an authoritative voice. That is yeah. a full on voice. You are going <laughs> right. to pay attention. You hear that voice. Yeah. And, and you know what? I've, if LA's changed us in any way, I think it's not nearly to the degree and to the extent that we have been impacted by uh, interacting with our fans, the Mythical Beast, who are from everywhere, all around the world. And I think we've benefited from all of, from them connecting with us and sharing with us um, the struggles they go through. Um, we're, we're constantly floored to hear that our show and the things that we create and our friendship is a source of strength for them and the things that they go through in their lives. And once you start to really get to know people and the things that they've been through, it changes how you interact with people that otherwise from arm's length in the past, I was, it was much more easier for me to put people in a box. 
And I think that that's a, that's a big way that I've changed. And it's, it's not an LA thing. It's a, it's an internet thing. Interesting. Um, I want to ask you two questions, both having to do with uh, the letter F. So what's in the file cabinet? <laughs> and talk to uh, my audience about how big a deal food is and has become in Good Mythical Morning and this whole kitchen thing you've got that's another part of your production life. The filing cabinet's been around a long time, so Red, I'll, I'll, take, the, I'll take the quick <laughs> answer to that one. I occasionally pull the drawers on that puppy. Okay. And I, I think the producers hide things that they don't want people to find that they're going to need later, and they'll, they'll get in trouble if they don't know where they are. Like the mugs that are on our desk, we'll trade those out, and I think there's some of those hidden there, or like we have special name tags if we win, if we win certain games. We can't lose those name tags. Uh, other than that, I don't think there's a lot in there. There ain't no files in there. <laughs> ain't no X files in there. Okay. No. Did that come from either of your homes, or was that uh, found somewhere along the, a dusty road in uh, rural North Carolina? <laughs> that was an LA find. Almost. Oh, yeah, LA yeah. find. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think hey, you found that in El Segundo. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's only a few things on set at this point that have true sentimental value like that gold guitar that's behind us is mm -hmm. the first guitar that i ever had when i was 17 years old uh there's a few things like that but most of it's just set dressing from various la uh thrift shops got it got it talk about food yeah so food has again i think that as we talk about creating in the context of community uh you're sort of you're you're there's this balance between innovating and leading and doing the things that you want to do, the things that you think people want to see, but also responding to what they're responding to. And very early on when we decided, Hey, let's do something where we put a bunch of weird ingredients in different taco shells and call it will it taco and seeing how people responded to that. We were like, Oh, we, well, we got to do that again. And slowly, <laughs> you know, over time we became, more and more food centric until, you know, a good percentage of what we do on the show is food based because that's what people have responded to. Of course, we wanted to move beyond just getting one of our producers who couldn't cook any better than us to put pine needles into a taco and said, well, what if we actually invested in someone who knows what they're doing? And that's when we found mythical chef Josh. And he kind of brings these two things together. He understands the world, the culinary world. He's a legitimately gifted chef, but he's also just a funny guy who sort of represents mythicality on camera in a way that's difficult to do. Uh, and when we, you know, people started responding to him and the whole idea all along has been, you know, that's one of the reasons that we changed from Rhett and Link Incorporated to Mythical Entertainment was we're trying to build something bigger than the two of us. We don't want it to just be about us. And, when we find somebody like Josh who brings those two things together that the audience loves, we began to really encourage that and to foster that. And that sort of became this idea for mythical kitchen where Josh and now Trevor uh, and Nicole, who are also helping him are basically creating their own content over there. That is sort of tangential to what we're doing on good mythical morning. There's a lot of crossover, but really it's its own thing, building its own audience. If you haven't seen it, I urge you to, uh, Type in uh, Willet Grilled Cheese, and then take a gander at a Squid Ink Grilled Cheese Sandwich 
that says black as night with cheese that melts and is infused with squid ink that looks, as they, Red and Link said, like tar. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a nightmare. But, you know, I'm, I'm super proud of what, what Josh does in how he feeds us. But then he also initiates things like right now he initiated a thing with other Internet chefs called the Leftovers Challenge. And if you just search hashtag Leftovers Challenge, on Twitter and YouTube, you'll see that um, they're raising money for the Restaurant Workers Community Foundation. What you do is you order takeout, which um, my kids love it when we do that, and it's good for our community and like the local restaurants. You order more than you need for one night. You take the leftovers the second night, and then you you craft a new creative dish, take a picture of it, post it online, and then help spread the word about the Restaurant Workers Community Foundation and um, you can also donate to them, but, you know, just to support, as you said at the, at the top, you know, you've got, you've got these essential workers and you've, who, are, who are doing things like feeding us and stocking shelves. And, um, but then you've got people that are no longer waiting tables or they're no longer able to uh, hire as many people at restaurants and keep that going. So it's a part of our, it's a part of our neighborhoods. It's part of our society. We want to support those any way we can. So for Josh to helm that is something that we're, super proud of and you may not know this but this show of mine the takeout uh under normal circumstances is always built around a meal my guest and i sit down and we have a meal in a restaurant here in dc because dc is a hyper powerful town with a lot of pompous people who can't get off their or can't get over themselves but they'll eat <laughs> but they'll eat and there's something about the process of eating that makes someone slightly less pompous myself included yeah, yeah. so <laughs> we do it that way before i before i let you two fine gentlemen go and i really do appreciate you bowing down and scraping for the legacy media person that i am i really do um tell me about and tell my audience about the carolina reaper oh, oh gosh because that looks seriously disruptive to you at a very physical level it it was. it was at the time the certifiably the world's hottest pepper. And um, there's a guy who grew these in North Carolina and he mailed them to us. And when we got them, we thought that they were they had been damaged in the mail. I mean, it was like they smelled like <laughs> death. And then it just turns out no, that's that's how they're supposed to be. Yeah. And then so in in that video, in that episode of Good Mythical Morning, we each ate a full pepper, and then we Rhett, we went ten minutes without ten minutes, ten minutes drinking anything. Right? I mean, I, I, I can't even ten it minutes was, without ice cream or any dairy uh, to soften it out a little bit. Yeah, yeah. without anything. Yeah. and so it's I just watching us endure it. <laughs> and there's a scale that you guys showed some graphic of that shows how hot a pepper is in terms of its yeah. concentration, and it's off. The, it's the top. Yeah, so the Scoville scale, I can't remember exactly what, uh, I think the Reaper is around 2 million Scoville units, which is, for reference, I think a jalapeno is like twenty to 40,000, you know, so we're talking many, many times hotter than that. And most people think a ghost pepper is the hottest I did until I saw that episode, and it's much hotter than that. Yeah, well, and the guy who, uh, these there's these guys who are crossbreeding these peppers and constantly trying to create something hotter. And Masochist. Uh, I, I think his name is, it's like Ed. His name is Ed something Ed. from North Carolina. <laughs> and, Ed, uh, of course. He's the one who 
created the Carolina Reaper. He bred it, and now he has come up with this thing called the Pepper X, which I don't think has been officially measured yet, but according to him and a lot of people on the internet, it is another million, I think, hotter than the Carolina Reaper. And so we just, a lot of people have sent us messages, you guys got to try Pepper X. We're like, no, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> we no, will no, not. You're scoville out. You, you've you've yeah, reached yeah, yeah. your Scoville max. Yeah. I lost my sense of taste for at least five days. I would, I would drink a, like a Coke and it would taste like, it would taste like lake water. <laughs> Seriously. It burned my taste buds off. Hell of a show though. Hell of a show though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, watch it. It was it was it, worth the views. It was, if you haven't seen it, folks, because the timer itself, you 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 begin to feel like, are they gonna make it? Are are they gonna retch? Are their eyes gonna fall out? Uh <laughs> I mean, all of these physical reactions you guys had uh, were masterfully preserved uh, for all time because the internet is forever. And yes. to pick up on a comment you just made a moment ago, Rhett, people on the internet, they can't be wrong about anything. <laughs> exactly. Right. You have to listen to them. <laughs> listen, gentlemen, uh, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much for doing this. Um, I really appreciate it. Uh, all the best of luck with everything you're doing. Be well with your families. Be safe. And... Uh, I hope at some point uh, we can meet in person someday because you guys rock and I'd really love to do that. Yeah, that would be awesome. Major. We can share that yeah. meal you were talking about. Yes, exactly. so we'll have that meal. I buy for sure. All right. All right. I'll hold you to it. Excellent. <laughs> be well, guys. We'll see you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Survivor's back and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast.